mean, the reality is like doing nothing is still doing something. <laughs> you can't escape like the fact that we all have responsibilities for what's going on in the world. Just like if you know, if there's a fire, standing there and watching it burn is, is doing something, and throwing water on it is also still doing something. You know, so I do feel like I want to use the gifts I have to help to shape the world the way I would like to see it be. That's Kamasi Washington. I'm Michael Sokol, and this is Same Wavelength, a platform where I have conversations with artists about the relationship between their creative work and our current political moment. Same Wavelength is a place where artists speak their truths. Kamasi Washington is my guest on this episode, the third episode of Same Wavelength. As I said, my name is Michael Sokol. Hello, Michael Sokol. Hey, Michael. Good morning, Michael. Hi, Michael. I'm a former radio DJ who wanted to start a platform where I could have open conversations with creative folks discussing social and political issues and talk about how they choose to use their platforms during these confusing and divisive times. For me, talking with artists is such a source of energy and discovery. I realize there's so much to learn from artists about how to navigate the world during trying times. I think artists can, can teach us how to better connect with our history and how to better connect with one another when we're feeling disconnected and overwhelmed. Before we get to the conversation with Kamasi, I do want to say that if you, like me, are really concerned about the cruel and inhumane treatment of children and families happening right now at our southern border, there's a list of resources to check out in the show notes for this episode on the podcast's website, samewavelengthpodcast.com. There you'll find a, a growing list of organizations doing really important work with immigrant families. And now's a, a really good time to, to read about them and figure out how to maybe get involved in a way that makes the most sense for you. Lastly, I, I'm grateful for your ears. There's so many places to be directing your attention these days. So it means so much that you're here listening. And I, I thank you for that. My guest on episode three of Same Wavelength. Hey, how you doing? It's Kamasi Washington. Kamasi Washington is a saxophonist, composer, producer, and band leader based in Los Angeles. Kamasi has collaborated with Kendrick Lamar, Herbie Hancock, Lauren Hill, St. Vincent, Ibei, Snoop Dogg. Every few episodes of Same Wavelength, I'm going to dig into my archives of interviews and pull one out that I find particularly moving and relevant right now. And these conversations are going to be a little shorter than the other episodes. So this is from a conversation that Kamasi Washington and I had together at the end of 2017. I like to revisit these conversations because they, they tend to focus on personal and cultural histories and larger systemic topics that transcend our fleeting and lightning fast news cycle. So I talked with Kamasi at the end of 2017, right after his EP called Harmony of Difference came out. We talk about that record as well as his 2015 album, The Epic. Most recently, Kamasi released Heaven and Earth last summer and was named one of the best records of last year by Pitchfork, Rolling Stone, Mojo, New York Times, The Guardian, NPR. Anything that's referenced throughout the conversation, you can find all of that listed in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. And that's all there because I hope this podcast can be for you like it is for me, a place of discovery. Here's my conversation with Kamasi Washington on Same Wavelength. Hey, Kamasi, how are you, man? Pretty good, man. How are you? 
I'm good. So, Kamasi, I want to start by asking you about a specific neighborhood in Los Angeles called Lamert Park. Yeah, yeah. It, it has this really rich history of art and music, and I know it has a lot of personal significance to you. How, how did Lamert Park play into your growth, both as a musician and as a boy growing up in Los Angeles? Yeah, um, Lamert Park is definitely one of the, uh, definitely, I mean, I, I, I would say that probably, it's not the, but definitely one of the most significant like cultural hubs in Los Angeles. You know, the ironic thing about it is that, is that like, it's kind of right in the middle of South Central LA. And so for me, it was, it was really significant because it, it was weird. It was, it was in my neighborhood, but I was kind of unaware of it for, you know, the early parts of my life. And, um, you know, you get this image of where you, where you're from and it, it being like this kind of dangerous, kind of negative place. And then when I was about maybe 11, my dad took me to Lamert Park. So it was my first concert, and it was uh, Pharrell Sanders playing at the World Stage. Wow. Uh, great drummer, Billy Higgins, had a, had a club called the World Stage, and Pharrell Sanders played there. And so it was, it was like, it was, it, it, it completely changed my perspective of, of, of my environment. And all, it was like all of a sudden, like, the, it was like, somebody like turned the light on, and I could like see all the, all the beauty around me. Um, and then I started hanging out there, and it was, you know, there were so many great musicians and, and poets and dancers and drummers and painters and just this really creative, vibrant spirit to that area. And it kind of became my little second home. You know, it was like if I wasn't at home, my parents knew where I was at. I was in the murk. <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot of my heroes were, you know, walking around, people like Gerald Wilson and you know, Horace Tapscott when he was alive, Billy Higgins. It's a group called Black Note that we were all really <laughs> fond of coming up in LA, and um, yeah, it was just it was a, it was a very positive space. It was like it was it just felt like everybody in Lamert was rooting for you. <laughs> and so, as a young musician, we, you know, we would do shows at the World Stage, and you know, everybody would come out, and it just felt like it felt like you know the world was in your hand. Like it was like a complete reverse from the image that we were seeing on the in the news, that, like. That if you're from if you're from the area that I grew up in, that like more than likely you were going to end up in prison or in a gang or dead, it just felt like in Lamert, like you were going to change the world <laughs> instead of be a victim of it. Mm. You mentioned Pharaoh Sanders, who is one of my favorite players, and and one of the things I really like about your music, Kamasi, is it feels like you have this real deep respect for the past. And, you know, I hear echoes of some of your jazz forebears like Pharaoh and John and Alice Coltrane, Archie Shep. And it feels to me like you're, you're honoring the expression and the spirituality and the politics of those players and really bringing their legacies forward to the present moment. Oh, wow. Thanks. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's also super cool that you're shining a light on some of those LA players like Horace Tapscott, Gerald Wilson, who you mentioned earlier, who, you know, are, yeah, aren't as well known. Thank you. You know, I, um, my dad's a musician, so I'm, I'm, I'm a second-generation musician. And, you know, Los Angeles has a very rich musical tradition that wasn't very much known outside of Los Angeles. And so my dad had all these friends that were so that were such great musicians. And uh, I remember being a kid, and I, I knew them. And but I, you know, I, I started playing saxophone. I mean, I got serious about music. You know, when I was around 11 or 12. And I remember just as I started to get serious about music, I started to realize like how good these guys were. Like people like Nordy Deadman and Sunship Theus and, and I was like, Wow, it's and I then I started to, as I got a little older I started to be become aware of the fact that like, you know, these guys 
like people outside of Los Angeles didn't didn't know them, and they didn't really have a chance to share their gifts kind of with the world. And uh, I feel like there was a whole generation of musicians, especially in Los Angeles, that just kind of got they, they they were kind of overlooked. So it was almost like, you know, if I get a chance to, to share my music, I'll give a nod to these people whose music meant a lot to me, but could have meant a lot to the world. Yeah, and I love that you're able to share all of this with a whole new audience and a whole new generation who maybe otherwise wouldn't normally listen to, quote, jazz music. Yeah. And I wonder if some of your ability to transcend that, do you feel like some of that has to do with your hip-hop background at all? I know that when you were studying jazz in college at UCLA, you went on tour with Snoop Dogg. Yeah. Did, did that experience you know, change how you approach playing saxophone and, and how you're able to kind of bridge these different musical worlds? Yeah, so, you know, I grew up listening to hip-hop. And so um, uh, Terrace Martin called me to, um, to come play with Snoop. I was, like, really excited. I was like, you know, I love Snoop when I was growing up. But I never really studied hip-hop musically, you know? I, it was just something I listened to. I never really, up until that point, it wasn't something that I really understood beyond any intuitive kind of understanding. And so then I, when, I saw, when we started rehearsing to play with Snoop, all of a sudden, I was meeting all these people that were kind of the, the people who were behind the music I was behind, Snoop, and, and all of that, that West Coast hip-hop. And so we're, we're playing the music, and in my mind, I'm thinking, like, you know, I know I know a lot of these songs. I know, like, the possible horn lines that might be coming up. And they're all pretty, they, in my mind, seem pretty simple. And so we get there, and, and they're telling us what to play, and it's, it seems pretty simplistic. And so I, I play it back, and be like, no, 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 no. And then they sing it again. I play it, and we play it back, and it's like, no, that's not it. And we were trying to figure out what's happening. Like, if I'm playing the exact notes and the exact rhythms that you're <laughs> singing to me. But, you know, they hear music on a on a different level of, of detail. And it's so much about the placement of how you play something and the tone and, and all those really subtle components to music that sometimes in jazz, especially in, in modern jazz, can get a bit overlooked. And... Um, I started to realize that the reason why they saying we weren't playing it right was because, you know, we weren't phrasing it the way they were phrasing it. The tone we were using may not have been it, or the the dynamics weren't exactly what, and I was like, they, and that, they weren't necessarily explaining that to me. They were just, they can just hear it. And it was like, oh, okay, you're hearing more than just the notes and the rhythms. And listening to music in that way and understanding the real importance of this stuff and not looking at it like, like that, that was almost more important than the notes. Like if you played it with the right feel and the right and the right vibe, you know, it was like the, playing the wrong vibe was worse than playing the wrong note. Right. It was more about you know, how like, you were playing it, not so much what you were playing, which is very different than your jazz education, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, and then as you start to hear music in that way, you start to understand, wow, that stuff, that really is really important. And it's like, that's what you realize. Like that's what makes musicians that you love so much, so special, is the vibe. And putting that back into jazz, I wasn't just thinking about scales and harmonies and chords and stuff like that. I was thinking about the emotion that I'm conveying behind that and all those other little subtleties that really are the things that really kind of hit someone in the chest when they hear your music. And it really took the way I play jazz and, and bounced it up a whole nother level. Super cool. I'd love to ask you about your record, Harmony of Difference, which is a six-piece suite that you recently released as an EP, and it was also part of an exhibit at this past year's Whitney Biennial in New York. And in the music, you employ this technique of musical counterpoint. 
can you talk about counterpoint and why you centered harmony of difference around this concept yeah counterpoint is basically a device a tool like a, a an approach to taking different melodies or different melodic figures and kind of balancing the amount of similarity and difference in them to kind of create a harmonious relationship between them. Essentially, when you hear a song, it's the relationship of different tones coming together. Uh, anytime you have like chords or bass line or multiple melodic figures, that, that's, all, that's all counterpoint. And um, you know, I was looking for a way to kind of, the world was just in a weird place when I was, I was still in a weird place, but um, when I was working on this project, Originally, the, the Whitney Museum in New York asked me to create something for the biannual. And uh, I just felt like there was this lack of, of appreciation for our differences that was happening in our country and really around the world. And I was just, I was working on some music and I realized like music is a perfect you know, metaphor and, and example of how like difference, it isn't always just a struggle. It's, it's something that like when you can make it work, it's, it's, it's really beautiful. So. Yeah, well, I, I think you, I think you did make it work, and it's really cool. I mean, so this is a six-piece suite, and basically the first five pieces kind of fold into the final piece, Truth, which is, um, and yeah. tell me if I'm oversimplifying this, but it's basically a composite of the preceding movements fused together and kind of layered on top of each other. Yeah, so that's where, that's where, that's where the counterpoint came in. So basically what I did is I, I wrote one song, I wrote the first song, and then had that, that song playing while I wrote the second song, and then... I wrote the third song while the first two were playing. And so each song was kind of like birthed from the, the composite of the songs that came before them. Wow. So like one didn't exist without the prior ones, like as part of the process. Nah, yeah. You named the, the songs Desire, Humility, Knowledge, Perspective, Integrity, and then the final one, Truth. Why why those words, Masi? Um, truth was, was the first name that I came up with. And uh, I felt like, you know, I was trying to figure out like what 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 are we really looking for in in this kind of harmony of our differences, and I feel like that you know a lot of our differences kind of stem from this idea that you know what what we believe or what we know or what we think, and that's a universal we <laughs> is the truth. You know, like how we see the world is the way the world is, and the reality is that's not true. It's, the real truth is kind of spread out amongst all of us. And, you know, and as people that have done a little traveling will tell you, like, as you start to learn other people's cultures, other people's languages, other people's ways of living, life starts to become less of a mystery. And so that's why, you know, I named the six, I know ultimately wanted to come to truth. And then the other titles, I felt like the concepts that lead a person to truth. And so like desire, I felt like was the first, the first thing you need to like, start that journey towards truth because it's, it's you have to want it you have to actually before you are going to learn something or become before you gain any type of understanding you have to first want that understanding you have to start the journey of seeking it and then uh, humility is important because you have to understand that you don't have it and that you don't know everything and that, that what you're searching for you don't already have and then knowledge I feel like it's the next step which is you go after that that wisdom, and, and you look for you look for the for the answers to the questions that you don't have. And then perspective is important in that. In my experience, like you start to realize that there is no will one truth. There's no one answer. It's, it's all about like the multitude of answers and how you perceive them. 
at what angle do you see them and what in what approach do you take to them and then integrity is once you really actually find that truth a lot of the times it's not really what you wanted and to really eventually really kind of have it you have to accept it regardless as to what it means to you personally yeah it's it's really powerful man i mean at a time when you know we're we're so divided and reactionary and you know we're all protecting our tribes and our bubbles more than ever yeah this idea that you're putting forth of awareness and empathy it's a really powerful concept Thanks. I mean, do you aim to use your platform as a unifier or a healing force? You know, I feel like, um, you know, music kind of has that intuitively to it. You know, it, it's a unifying force intuitively. I mean, I think uh, music, it just brings people together. It's why, like, when a song comes on, people all run out to the dance floor, and it's just, they don't really think about anything. It's, it's um, It brings people together more than it does anything else. And then for me, I feel like, the world is what we make it, you know, and we each have our, our own part to what the world is. Regardless, you can't kind of escape it. You know, we're all responsible for w- what our reality is. So for me, it's, um, you know, one of my best at is, uh, is music. And I felt like it's not the only thing that I do with my music. I mean, I mean, more than anything, it's an expression of, of who I am and what's inside of me. But I feel like, I also have to use that ability and that, that tool and that gift to help to shape the world the way I, you know, would like to see it be. And, um, and because, you know, sometimes, I mean, I mean, the reality is like doing nothing is still doing something. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you can't escape like the fact that we all have a responsibility for what was going on in the world. Just like if, you know, if there's a fire, you know, standing there and watching it burn is, is doing something and, Throwing water on it is also still doing something, you know. So the, so I do feel like that the, the, I, I want to use the gifts I have in a positive way and, and in a way that I hope you know helps make the world uh, a little bit better. Yeah. On your record, the epic. There's a song called Malcolm's Theme, which, as the title suggests, is a tribute to Malcolm X. Why did you want to pay tribute to Malcolm X on that record, Kamasi? Um, so another thing for me, my childhood growing up, like I was saying before, you know, I, I grew up in South Central LA and, you know, just, you know, growing up watching the news, you just, you get this negative, in, you get this negative image of who you are and where you come from and the people that live in your neighborhood of, of being of a certain character. And, you know, so I'm in elementary school and, and kind of subconsciously, not even really realizing it, I had kind of taken on this negative self image of myself. And, uh, you know, I'm a little kid, I'm, I'm totally innocent, but like, I look at myself as like being a gangster <laughs> and like a, a thug. And I'm like, I'm not even actually a thug or a gangster. I have two parents, good parents. And like, you know, there's no reason for me to be that, but I just, you just, you see these images of, of who you think the world thinks you are and you just start to kind of accept them and you don't even look at them as being negative. You just, they just are what they are, you know? And, um, these guys came to my school. These young, these young men came to my school. They were probably in their, in their mid twenties, and they just kind of took it upon themselves that that you know they were going to make a difference in this one little school in their community. And they, you know, they they um, started a program called Ujima, 
and they they got us all to join because they they, they got us Dodgers tickets, <laughs> and so none of us had ever been to a Dodger game. Nice. So they uh, they took us to, to, to go see a baseball game, and so we were all like, "Oh yeah, I want to be a part of this." And and then in that, they started to try to teach us about our history and 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 just kind of make us aware of the fact that like we had started to take on this self image of ourselves that that we didn't even realize we were taking on. And one of the first things they did was they gave us the autobiography of Malcolm X. And, uh, you know, I was a little kid. I was in elementary school, probably in, like, third grade. <laughs> and then I, I read his autobiography, and it was it was really heavy, but it, 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 it kind of opened my mind, opened my eyes to the idea that, like, you're, you're, you're more than the image that the media may portray of you. And that, you know, we all have, you know, this, like I said before, this power to shape the world into what we want it to be. And, and that, like, if you want your people and yourself to be beautiful and, and positive, then all you have to do is believe that yourself. And so, like, that was, like, basically the message that I got from Malcolm X's autobiography. And it was weird because, you know, his image and, and what I thought about him prior to reading that book was something completely different. It was like that he was all about hate and all these other things. And, like, you know, it was like they didn't really teach you about Malcolm X in school. I feel like he's one of the most misunderstood characters in, in history. Yeah. And it was, you know, for me, I felt like I always wanted to, like, it was a gift to, like, kind of read his words and understand that what he was really saying was kind of like self-love, you know? Self-love for, for people that really, really lack a large degree of self-love. So, you know, in my whole life, I've always, like, <laughs> I've always, I'll tell little kids to read it, like, you know, I tell my little nieces to read it, and, <laughs> you know, and so when I was making an epic, I was like, man, I would love to like kind of spread that message because it feels like sometimes it's lacking in today's world. Like this, this idea of understanding like you are who you want to be, not who someone says you are. Mm. And um, I feel like his his writings and his and his and his words and his ideas are something that I actually have a universal appeal, and it's something that I think everyone should read and understand. It it. it, it his ideas will make the world a better place. But sometimes because of his perception, people haven't really studied his his ideas and his work. So that was like it was it was powerful for me and I just wanted to kinda of share that that same that same wisdom with other people. Kamasi, are you feeling hopeful for the future? Yeah, I do. I always feel hopeful for the future because um when you meet young people it, it, it makes you hopeful for the future. So, you know, people my age are now becoming the, uh, quote-unquote, the grown-ups. <laughs> you know, like the world is literally kind of coming to a place where it's coming into our hands. And it's, you know, I'm hopeful for the future, and then I'm hopeful that my generation will do things that take us to a better place. I mean, sometimes you look at some stuff, I look at some things like, you know, some of the actions of our current administration and stuff like that, and it, it makes you kind of lose a little bit of hope. But then, you know, I meet so many people and there's so much, there's so much good in the world that I feel like there's actually more good than bad in the world. And we just have to, we all have to do our little part. And that's what I was kind of saying earlier. It's like, if we all do our little part and do what we can do and just add what we have, the world will be great. It'll be a beautiful place. And um, it's just about more people kind of taking that stance and not getting so overwhelmed with the the weight of the entire world, you know, it's like those guys who came to my school, you know, they didn't, they didn't decide they're going to change every kid in 
in South Central LA or every kid in America, they were just like, well, I can spend two days a week and come down to this school that's in my neighborhood and help these 15 kids. <laughs> and if everybody kind of took that perspective or, or more people took that approach, you know, there'd be so much good kind of happening that it would, it would definitely overwhelm the bad. And so it was that I, I do have hope for the future. Kamasi, thank you so much for your time today. I'm really grateful to you for your work and your inspiration. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. Have a good rest of the day. Oh, yeah. Thank you. A big thank you to Kamasi for his time and interest in this project. Anything mentioned throughout our conversation, any books or music, all that is cited in the show notes for this episode at samewavelengthpodcast.com. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, please do that. And if you can rate it and review it and share it, that would be amazing. That really helps me reach more folks and get the word out about Same Wavelength. Make sure you're following the podcast on social media, on Instagram and Facebook, it's Same Wavelength Podcast. On Twitter, Same Wave Pod. This conversation was edited for brevity and clarity, though I made a sincere effort to retain Kamasi's words and ideas in their most honest form. Thank you to Kamasi's management for their interest in this project and for letting me include this conversation as part of the podcast. Thank you to them and to Kamasi's label and publisher for letting me use an excerpt of his song Truth in this conversation. The theme music that you're hearing right now and that you heard at the beginning of this episode is an instrumental version of a song by my band Bunk called Turn the World Around. You also heard an instrumental version of another one of our songs at the beginning of this episode called The Story of My Morals. Thank you to my bandmates, Brett and Dave, for being cool with me using these songs for the podcast. My guest on the next episode of Same Wavelength, Henry Rollins. If you were to throw out all these, quote, illegal people from our country, go ahead and watch America stop working in about four hours. These people, as they're called, are people I'm so happy to share a country with. I feel so lucky. I live in Los Angeles. Are you kidding? Henry Rollins is a punk rock icon, spoken word poet, singer, actor, author, photographer, activist, and DJ. He was the lead singer of the seminal punk rock band Black Flag in the 80s. We talk about his time with Black Flag, his political awakening growing up in D.C. in the 60s and 70s, and how he's making sense of what's going on in our country right now. I'm Michael Sokol. Thank you so much for listening to Same Wavelength. Be good to yourself, and be good to those around you.